Hello, everyone. In this podcast, we will be discussing sensitive topics such as sexual assault. It's important to take care of yourself while listening. Some suggestions are listening while you're in a healthy headspace or knowing who you can reach out to if you become upset. Our 24-7 helpline for crisis calls based out of Central Florida is 407-500-HEAL. By contacting the national hotline at 1-800-656-4673, you can get support and learn about your local resources. There's always someone ready to help. Service Center podcast. Here we sit down with professionals that serve survivors and victims of trauma or those who've experienced violence and have conversations about social issues. This week we are talking about Gail's Law. My name is Emily Mitchell, my pronouns are she, her, and I'm the education coordinator at the Victim Service Center of Central Florida. With me today I have Gail Gardner. So Gail is a member of VSC Speakers Bureau and is an author of two books, Woman to Woman, Gleaning Inspirational Insight from Our Biblical Mothers and Healing Scriptures, Declaring and Affirming God's Love. As a survivor of sexual assault and abuse, Gail is passionate about mentoring women through engagement, faith, encouragement, inspiration, and empowerment. So Gail, thank you so, so much for being here today. We're so excited. Thank you for having me. And I also have returning Joellen Ravel. So Joellen uses she, her pronouns and is the Victim Service Center Program Director who oversees the advocacy, therapy, and forensic nursing department. She is a licensed clinical social worker with over 20 years experience in clinical and administrative oversight. So Joellen, thank you as well for being here today. Thank you, Emily. It's a pleasure to be here. As a really brief introduction, I'm very excited to have this conversation because today we are very lucky to be joined by Gail Gardner to talk about Gail's Law um, and why it's very important for survivors of sexual assault who choose to undergo a forensic DNA evidence collection exam and report their assault. So with that, I think it would be great to just start off a little bit. Gail, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? and how you got connected with the Victim Service Center. I I am a survivor of sexual abuse and sexual assault. I divide the two because one happened when I was a child and the abuse came because of my connection to the abuser. And I see it that way. That's my personal view, but also the assault came after I was an adult and I was raped by a brutal uh, serial Right um, situation in my uh, my county, my city. Um, I got uh, involved with Victim Service Center because I had started going, wanted to volunteer. I started um, putting some things together with some people I had talked to, and so said, you know, maybe I need to put some effort into this. 
and myself. And I had just written a book. And so I really thought it was a good time to start talking to people. And I realized that the more I talked about it, the, um, the, the more I felt more freer about talking about it. So when coming to the Victim Service Center, I was, they were just putting together a speakers bureau. And I was one of the few, along with Diana, both Dianas and some other um, individuals. And so that's how I got started with Victim Service Center and began to bring people when I had an opportunity um, that would come to, because we had nowhere else that you know, they could go or afford that kind of service that they were given. And, and I will add that I've been at VSC as the program director for over eight years, but I've always known Gail to be a part of Victim Service Center. And she was one of the first volunteers that I ever encountered. And she had a presence about her. Um, she would be in the office and, and I got to know her individually based on her past experience and her desires. So my kind of time at VSC has always been with Gail as part of it, sometimes a lot more frequent. And now because of Gail's law, definitely. But um, it's always been a pleasure to see someone who's lived through a horrible experience be able to overcome and demonstrate resilience. And that's really what our agency is about, is that mm -hmm. journey. So she's a great example of that. Thank you. Absolutely. I, I always love to hear kind of um, all of the amazing work that you've done on behalf of VSC and have done on behalf of survivors. Um, you really are like this, this advocate through and through. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that and how you're doing that with Gail's Law currently. And you brought up, you know, some terms here that I think might be beneficial We've been doing this podcast for a while now, but you know, just in case as someone's kind of first kind of talking about sexual violence yeah. and things like that, I think it might be helpful to just provide some background information and definitions. So I thought it might be helpful to just define what sexual assault is. Sure, I'll take that question. So sexual assaults, you know, in, in the briefest terms is unwanted sexual contact without consent. Um, but it's important to understand that it's complicated. There's a lot of statutes within the state of Florida, within any state or jurisdiction that you reside. So if you're hearing this outside of Florida, please be cognizant that you should identify and know what is the statute in the area that you reside. So in Florida, we call it sexual battery, and that is oral, anal, or vaginal penetration by or union with the sexual organ of another or the anal or vaginal penetration of another by any other object committed without your consent. So clearly you understand that's like a legal definition and a legal term that would be used for investigation and prosecution. For us as a rape crisis center, it is working with individuals who've experienced something in their lives that they did not consent to. And of course, when you consider sexual abuse, you should be thinking of an individual who's a minor who does not have the capacity to consent or 
it could be a vulnerable adult who also does not have that capacity to consent. Thank you so much, Joel. And yeah, I think um, I appreciate you brought up the both the legal definition and just the overarching one and knowing that VSC, um, what we like to say is if you feel a line has been crossed, it has, um, and you deserve healing, whether or not it's within that very wordy definition um, with the legal definition, I should say. Um, and in the context of this conversation, because Gail's law does have to do with expanding the rights of victims, what, it, what do we mean by when we say victims' rights? The rights that victims have according to the law, it should be a law, but it also at the same time, um, there should be, I believe, uh, um, an ethical, uh, moral uh, component to it in the person that is actually, or the people that are actually um, administering um, from that standpoint. And I say that basically because of what we're looking at now being trauma-informed for those who are first responders and all of those who work with this. And with Gail's Law, I also believe that if we put that into action, you know, at one time we had uh, the Violence Against Women's Act, and so now it's going to another level. And therefore, I really believe that being able to um, to deal with victims on a level that is goes beyond just in writing, but but should be in us to deal with people who are hurting, and um, not see that as an overnight thing and just you know just keep it going and get over it type of mentality. And so it's a lifelong journey. And so and it's something, um, and I don't I'll throw this in there real quickly. I stood before the um, Criminal Justice Committee on Tuesday, I think it was, and the, one of the, um, the, the, it was the elimination of, of, uh, of the statute of limitations um, for the state of Florida. And one of the things that they came up with was that they actually had a, a you know, it was, it was unanimous, like it was voted for, on that behalf just like it did for Gail's Law, because there's there are people who actually want to do the right thing, but you got to guide some people in that direction. So we're looking for victims' um, rights, and we have them in, in our county and in the state, uh, but on paper, but we're looking to hopefully can get some other people to understand that it's a moral issue for us. Absolutely. I totally agree, Gail. You know, in order to make sure that rights are implemented, the people that are encountering victims have to want to see that yeah. individual obtain all the rights they're, they're right. entitled to. So that's quite essential. And I think that's a training issue. It's mm -hmm. certainly awareness and education issue. Um, in the state of Florida and in all states, there's, you know, it's worded differently, but yes. are entitled to be informed, present, <laughs> and heard during relevant stages of the criminal proceedings. That's right. Um, and this is basically to the extent that these rights do not interfere with the accused. So with that being said, I, I can tell you, specific to sexual violence, um, if you are a victim of sexual violence, you do have a right to have an advocate from a certified rape crisis center, such as the Victim Service Center, mm -hmm 
part of the forensic exam and other criminal court proceedings. Mm-hmm. Super vital in terms of that rapport building and that connection that a victim and a sexual assault counselor can make together, which is very helpful for a victim who right. um, might need that support. That's right. There's also additional things that Florida has. Um, so some victims have the right to be eligible for victim compensation, which can cover things like mental health, mental health treatment and care or medical care if it's needed. Um, you have a right to restraining orders and things of that nature. So it's it's pretty important to know those things. And if you ever encounter a victim and you're not aware what they are, there's ways to easily find that information online. But I would also say if you connect with an agency like the Victim Service Center, an yeah. advocate can walk you through that process. Yes, Absolutely. Yeah. And I love that you brought up the idea, Gail, of it really is coming from that compassion standpoint yeah. too, where it kind of is about that victim-centered approach. And in addition to that, as we talk about kind of coming at that victim-centered approach, I know that things have kind of changed and shifted, um, realizing how we can better serve survivors and how we better can serve victims. So just to provide a little bit more background, uh, could we talk a little bit about the VSE history and our involvement with the expanding of the statute of limitations? I'll definitely speak on that. I mean, for me, it's exciting to have everything happening with Gail's Law. And in my lifetime, I never thought like, oh, I would be involved in in working with someone specific that's changing a law. But yet, this is not the first time that VSC has done something and connected a victim to an opportunity. So several years back, I believe 2014 ish, we had an individual who was a client of ours, and she's a public figure at this point. Her name's Danielle, and she was assaulted by a boss. And when she decided that she wanted to report it, because many people do not report right away, and people that are outside looking in should not question why someone didn't report, because they have a lot of reasons behind it. of the relationship, a boss and a worker, and the need for financial security. So when Danielle made the decision after counseling from the Victim Service Center that she wanted to report, she was informed she was 43 days late because the statute of limitation had passed in the state of Florida. And at that time, for an adult sexual assault, it was only four years. And she was very hurt by that, understandably. And she decided ultimately after some time and some further healing that she wanted to see if she can do something about changing that limitation. And myself and the executive director, Louis Damiani, were really surprised. And we really didn't kind of look and think nationally about statute of limitations. But when we started to, we realized at the time, Florida had the lowest statute of limitations, meaning it was very weak. It was not very victim-centered. And so many states had, you know, 10 years or 20 years and such. And we together um, worked on identifying 
what would be the best time frame? And so I did some actual research with our client base using victims of when we knew they were victimized and when they actually sought treatment and care for the victimization. And at that moment, using only our data, it was we were able to easily see it was about eight years on average um, with a range of up to 26 years. Um, yes. Now I'm saying I remember that because I think we went to lunch and talked with her. Uh, we, we all we had a lunch yes. with her and it was from three years and if the all they would give us, I think was eight when that was all over. Right. So when the good news is that effort was successful in a way because it went you know, through the legislative process and statute of limitation did change and it increased to eight years. So although, you know, we were shooting for like maybe 10, 20 would have been like pretty ideal, eight years still doubled the amount of time. And we knew that it was kind of on par with how long it takes for people to kind of accept, understand and recognize that they need to get care and heal from their victimization. Yeah, I really appreciate you both kind of talking about that history there. And it just is such a great example of how learning and hearing stories from survivors and understanding those very real barriers as to why or reasons as to why survivors may not uh, come forward right away. And I appreciate you, Joanne, saying, you know, from an outsider perspective, it, we really do need to have some kind of idea and, and empathy when it comes to, you know, the very complicated reasons, um, you know, fear of not being believed. Um, maybe um, there, there's a fear of being blamed for the victimization. And then, of course, that very specific example of, you know, relationships between the perpetrator and, and the victim, because we know eight out of 10 times, it is someone that they know. What if there's some family dynamics? It's just very complicated. So seeing that and understanding that and then approaching, okay, how can we bring in that compassion when we talk about victims' rights and be having a more victim-centered approach? It really is a, a way that we can kind of move forward and encourage healing for survivors. And with that, I'd like to kind of dive specifically into what we're gonna be really talking about today and focusing, which is Gail's Law. So what is Gail's Law and how did this idea come about? I wish I could take the credit for it, um, but I, I just wound up in being the milk fa the face on the milk carton, so to speak. But I was among some others who were um, talking about sexual abuse and trying to make system change. And I knew a couple of people on that committee and I wanted to be a part. And so knowing what I knew about my own experience and then hearing other experiences from other people, other women, I said, well, I was asked, would I, you know, be a part of that? Would I use my, would they use my name? Um, let them use my name. And I said, okay. But I took a moment and thought about it just before I said that, okay. It was like, oh God, now the world is going to know, you know, you, you create this great big picture that's really not there at least not then, but that's about to change. <laughs> so I'm going, um, okay, but only if it's gonna help my community and talking about community of color, black community, basically because 
we are so we're so bad on reporting crime period and then you're talking about sexual abuse and uh, sexual assault it's not reported at those numbers that it should be and i grew up in the, so many others in my generation and even some of the generations now with what goes on in this house stays in this house so we really wanted to kind of dispel some of that and the, the only reason why it's generational is because nobody's talking about it nobody's telling this you know on this one or that one. everybody sweeps it under the rug and keeps it quiet so with gail's law this was a system that uh that they we decided to put a bill through um regarding evidence um tracking the dna of a survivor and i want to thank of course the committee um who who put it together and the legislators who did uh did the work um uh, uh, linda stewart uh senator linda stewart and representative emily slosberg king now she just got married and um and a couple of others who supported it in orange county and even in deval county tracy um uh, davis and um, some others, and I, I'm really grateful for that. So I took, you know, we, we looked at that and they began to tell me, it took my case 30 years. And I learned something from you, Joellen, that I hadn't known before, and I've been challenging people on it. If you don't have a name on it and you didn't report it, then it sits on the shelf. And if it sits on the shelf with nothing on it, there's nothing they can do with it. Um, until you come in to report it it has a number well this tracking system also has a number and the uh the uh survivor can ask for you know you will be given the number if they choose to have it and be able to track where it is they have like a 90-day window to go from the time that is collected through the laboratory system from there you know the whatever of the stakeholders are that has to get it to the end of that results and ready for prosecution um that's that's where it goes or ready to sit on a shelf until somebody decides they want to report it so with this this makes it so easy it took me 30 years i reported it and that's another story but yet i reported it back in 1988 the night it happened and gave the rape kit and so it's it's really uh, something that is going to, of course, save time in this time and age. But there was a place there I didn't know what else to do after I had done that. So things are now working out where Gail's Law has making not just a, the DNA evidence uh, rape kit tracking system, but now there's been 26 other women who have been able to find out. They went back and found where their test came from the same um, individual, their DNA and uh, been able to add more cases to that. And now they're starting to actually look for more things and the, the tracking system won't be into effect until um, July 1st, 2023. It will, the law is there, but the, 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 the mechanics of it all, technology doesn't go into effect until then. Meanwhile, there's these people that are starting to come for and are looking to prosecute. So, um, we're looking for some some great things to happen, but some things are happening just on their own, just because Florida went ahead and took the chance. 30 other states have taken it already, and there's still some other states that are working towards that, but I think the last time I heard it was 34 now. 
um, uh, states, and we have more to go. But it, that that piece there, and the Gales Law in the state of Florida opened up some other things where people are now having to say, those stakeholders are now that we're going to have to step up our game. And some people are starting to say, you know, I think I'll look into this. It might be the same person that attacked me, you know. And some people are saying, oh, uh, I know what it was, and I remember it was, but I never reported it. I wonder if I still can. And they should, because even if they don't have a tracking kit, uh, the testing kit um, for this uh, that particular incident, there's still other ways of getting DNA or other ways to find, you know, some charges and that might be able, justice is the key here. It's, it's about the justice. Um, it's about the peace of mind. It's about not having to look over your shoulders. I didn't sleep from 1988 to 2016. I didn't sleep in the house at night by myself with the lights off. And so and I'm get up all night long looking through the blinds and everything. And I've talked to other women and they're saying they did the same thing. And then some did some other things different. Some didn't have any problem at all, not yet. But if I tell them, how are your relationships going? Some people are on their third marriage because if I can say it, sex wasn't important to them. When it's a very much important part of marriage. You know what I'm saying? So it, there's, there's so many ways that it can affect you and affect your relationships, affect your families, affect how you see it. Um, and 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 keeping that in in you and so now we have gail's law that has actually been doing some work before it's even been put into place as far as the technology is concerned and i'm looking forward to seeing some other things past the victims rights uh there's a bill um senate bill 660 that's not moving at all a stall in right now um for victims rights and that training so we hopefully from my face, I was able to make another appearance this week where, and, and was greatly welcomed by the committee who voted for my for Gail's law, and want to be able to make that same kind of uh, changes um, through my my appearance or, or whatever I need to do in order to get that happening on behalf of sexual victims and survivors. So I think a, key, a few key points that I wanted to piggyback off of with with what you said, Gail, mm -hmm. I appreciate you giving that that history and then sharing how the the one case or the one perpetrator of your crime had such a tremendous negative impact on so many other people's lives. Yes. So, you know, as Gail mentioned, this was over 30 years ago that she was assaulted and there was clearly different processes in place. Yes. Agency didn't even exist. No. We, we yeah, weren't even around. Yeah. yeah. And no place to go. The DNA kind of evidence collection and use of it in crimes has since the early 90s been astronomically advanced in terms mm -hmm. of the way DNA and other bodily fluids can be analyzed. So when you think about a rape kit, for those who are listening who don't really know what that is, the evidence collection, that can be done within 120 hours following a sexual assault. And today, currently, because of the way um, uh, several years back, there was a push for backlogs of rape kits to be kind of expedited, which was a great thing. 
2017. There are timelines in place. Law enforcement has to collect evidence. They have to get everything together. And there's, you know, 30 days to get it to FDLE and FDLE, you know, does the analysis and that, that process can take, take a while. And then it goes back to the investigating agency. And then there's a decision about prosecution. So it's not quick. It's not easy. I want to share that because we do see many television shows where it feels very fast um, and it's not necessarily very fast, but with Gail's Law, there is more opportunity and ownership of the experience for the victim to know and be informed and where it's kind of more legitimized in terms of, I understand this and it's backed up by whatever this database is. And it's not just verbal conversation between you know, I think this is the process. So it speaks a little bit to kind of earlier when Gail mentioned the ethical and moral values. You know, this puts something using technology so it's very clear. It's not just about, oh, maybe my detective and I will have a good rapport. And because of that, I'll have information share with me because we know detectives change and things happen. So it's about just here it is. It is what it is. I know what what's happening. And then I can be informed and make decisions based on that. So it's pretty exciting. And I would you know, definitely say, of course, it's not new in Florida, but it's great and wonderful that Florida took the opportunity to formalize the process and use Gail as really the face of the situation because she was a real good advocate for her case. And you know, she doesn't, she didn't share this yet, and maybe we'll discuss it further, but it was because she was trying to kind of share a video legacy with her children and her grandchildren, and she wanted to secure a piece of evidence, which was a blanket that was taken the crime, and she went back to the police department many times over different years, and that prompted one of the workers there to say, do you want to talk to the investigator? Do you want to talk to a detective about a cold case? And that mm-hmm. kind of opened things up. So her diligence and her desire and her willingness to be open and share was a catalyst for this. And, and for that, I, I am forever grateful. Absolutely. And, and I do want to also uplift to Gail, um, all of the amazing efforts, not only from that what Joanne was mentioning, but also just for Gail's Law. I know that you were traveling, I don't know, weekly to Tallahassee, like making all these trips, speaking everywhere. So I just want to commend you for all the work that you did um, throughout your life, but also specifically for Gail's Law. Um, it is very clear to me. I know that someone like kind of came up to you and said, you know, hey, um, since you were on this committee, how do you feel about it being named after you? Um, but um, after like hearing this history, I think that it's very clear why this, it, it's very um, appropriate, I think, to, to have this named after you. Um, I wanted to kind of lean into specifically why this law is so important um, for survivors, this kind of um, being able to track where someone's kit is, um, things like that, the sense of urgency or just timeliness, um, things like that. Why, why do you think this is so important for survivors? 
I think it's important because it's it, like Geraldine was um, saying, it cuts to the case, you know, it's, um, it's not the process that it was. And it doesn't mean things are going to happen overnight. But, you know, it took me 30 years because I'm waiting for for the detective to come to my door like I watch on SBU and knock at the door and tell me that I'm telling you, I'm, I'm a big fan and still a big fan. And just so happened, one of the organizations that sponsored me was is headed by the star of SBU. So um, my whole thing was, you know, I'm looking for something like that to happen. And we have to learn to advocate for ourselves. So it's very important that you advocate for yourself. The victim's rights is something we all need to have in the house, around us, know it by heart. Um, put it on the refrigerator, you know. There's things we have to learn, and we not only need to learn it as uh, as a survivor, but also on the other end, is that who is coming to you is somebody who someone who really is is reaching out for help and not criticism. Uh, can I? It's important. Can I tell this? Um, it's important because, and I, I alluded to this regarding the, the statute of limitations because, of the, like um, uh, Joanna said, things are are different for people who are, who are surviving these, uh, these uh, atrocities. And for years, you go on living a whole different mindset and it, it affects all parts of your life. And so when I did go for some, I was directed to another agency um, it wasn't, they weren't a provider, but they had an advocate there who had the title of an advocate. But when I walked out of there, I felt that I had been re-victimized all over again. So it's very important that those who are being trained, as we said, and the, the, the one who is, um, is, is, is the survivor, you know for yourself, to counsel anyone, you have to build a rapport with them. They have to be able to trust you with something that's very important and very sensitive to them. And you have to know that any trigger, anything can trigger um, something, you know, unconsciously. We, it's very important that we're able to work with them. It's very important that we're at this place now. And I want to commend the Victim Service Center and the, and the generations that are coming through now are just, you know, they're just so cool because my generation hit everything. But um, I just... <laughs> I'm just so happy and I can't wait for some of them to become more legislators, younger, you know, that understand. I, it's, it's just amazing me. So um, I'm, I'm there. And, but those kind of incidents, we don't want to happen anymore. And whatever it's going to take, whether it's in Gail's law, victim services, law, um, uh, policies or whatever. We need to make sure that people are not re-victimized all over again. I completely agree. And I would add to that that, you know, Gail's law allows for some sense of self-determination. So as a social worker, one of the things you learn is individuals need to have self-determination. They have to steer the ship. And so it puts the power back in their hands. And that might mean they want to move forward or they might decide not to, but they're mm -hmm. for themselves because yeah. they've been disempowered due to the victims victimization. And this provides empowerment for them, which mm -hmm. is a path to closure. Yes.
Yeah, I, I want to um, uplift because what I was hearing is, you know, this is a, an opportunity or um, a way that we can respect survivors more. We know that uh, sexual violence is about power and control, right? And so survivors, um, what's really integral is to give them agency so that we don't re-victimize them like uh, Gail was mentioning. And it's super integral that things like Gail's Law is just another opportunity for survivors of, you know, what is part of my healing journey and then being able to choose that this is part of it. And then as we go down this path for being part of this person's healing journey, it's a victim-centered approach too, where there is um, this empowerment and also these rights that victims have. And I think that that's super integral. And um, I think it's super important that we, we uplift that. So thank you so much, Gail and Joelle, and kind of breaking that down. Um, I know we talked a little bit about your history and in your experiences, Gail, but I wanted to check with you specifically on, you know, why are you particularly passionate about this issue? What made you involved in this particular issue? Um, well, one thing, as I said, I was a survivor and um, I was remembering that the one thing that stuck out to me, stuck out to me was there was no help unless you had money. There was no counseling unless you had money. I spent $50 one time and it was like spending 500. I was a single parent at the time. And so as time went on, I, you know, I kept moving through and, and, and I realized that even in my, my community, which was the church community, um, there were so many people of color that they, and when I would mention to them what, I, what happened with me with, as a child, I would be told it, you know, get over it. <laughs> you know, the one of those kind of, you know, uh, you know, nobody wants to talk about that. Nobody wants to hear about that. And it would just make me feel worse. And so I began to find out that there were more people when I that I did talk to that would say me too. You know, and I said, you know, I so I I got very concerned. And being in the church and in the ministry, I felt like though I didn't want to take too long, but I wanted to be able to reach these people and be the bridge that they would need to get them some professional counseling or whatever they needed. And so I went and had um, went back to school and got another master's degree and just went in pastoral counseling. But that was the, that was the fuel because I, there needed to be a bridge. There needed to be somewhere people can talk to someone. And I knew the more I talked about, about it, this course is beginning of healing. So the, I began to, you know, see a little bit more of me just come out. I had no other help. That's the only way I could go. And then as I began to listen to other people's stories, um, I would say, what's your story? And some woman would sit down and say, you don't want to hear that. I said, yeah, I got time. And all I had to do was give them time. And sometimes people, I was a bereavement counselor at my church. And sometimes they would start talking about, um, you know, just had a loss and come to me and be assigned and talk. And all of a sudden out of that conversation, who was about something else and somebody else would come up about this abuse and assault. And it happened more times than not. If not the first visit, by the second visit. I found out everything they couldn't tell anybody else. And so 
from that, I was talked to a client of it, um, about five or six times, maybe not that much. And then let them do, make the decision about, you know, seeing things in another perspective as much as you can, but let them make the decision if they want to go further into some more professional counseling. So I felt that I needed to be that bridge that even if they didn't, you know, go to their pastor somewhere that they can get an objective perspective on what's going on with them and be able to receive that needed help. Um, I had someone that told me all they needed to do was to go and finally tell their mother 30 years later. I was 42 years old before I told my mother. And it was after the rape because that that was I had suppressed as a child started to come up because of the rape. And so my the one counseling I went to, she first of all, she affirmed me. I felt so good when I left out of there. And then the other thing was she said, why don't you tell your mom what happened to you? And that was that $50 was worth $500 um, at the time. And so I did. I, my mother, I told her. And um, I said, she wouldn't believe me, you know, because we, you don't believe kids when they tell them that. But my stepfather, um, and 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 um, I didn't want to tell her, but I had to tell her. And it, it did okay, but I know she heard it from that. She heard from that a lot. She heard, and uh, those who, you know, in my family still now bothering me, we need a couple of them. But it's all good. So my passion came because I saw some others hurting and I knew that they felt a certain kind of way like I did. And there were things they needed to do, like talk to someone. And I needed to know how to handle that from a biblical perspective because these people were in my church or was in somebody's church. <laughs> you know, and I'm thinking, you know, you know, I don't want to go all of that. But my thing is, obviously, there's something blocking you from getting what's going on being spoken from up there. And you're still having these issues. What's blocking it? And I would hit it on the head every time. So sure enough, before the conversation's over, they would talk about something that had nothing to do with what they came in to see me about. Yeah, it's what Gail's saying is, is very common that we see at VSC when someone... We've said a lot, and there's a few things I want to hit on in terms of yeah. uh, validating. So trauma that happens for individuals when they're young, it, it appears later in life either through a, a positive thing, like a birth of a child or a marriage. Those memories may come up because there's fear. There's fear of intimacy. There's possibly shame and other things. But then if someone's re-victimized, they struggle um, in terms of much more self-blame. And ultimately, you know, my takeaway from what Gail is saying is there's a lot of systems that people interact with naturally. So we are humans and we're creatures and we are not isolated. We are out in the world and for the most part <laughs> outside of COVID, but we are out in this world and we are, you know, in the school system. We are in a church, a mosque, a house of worship. We might be in the military. We go to our doctors. We have friends, whatever hobbies. We encounter people all the time. And what we want to see, or I think what would be best is if these systems would be able to acknowledge and discuss and talk about 
traumas like sexual violence, whether sexual abuse or sexual assault. Because when someone is disclosing, if they do not get a fairly positive response from the person that they disclose to, that could be hugely detrimental. So if they disclose to an individual and that person does not hear them, um, blames them, or even in a nonverbal way, but demonstrates disinterest in hearing that, that could be hugely detrimental to someone. So what I hope is when someone reveals or discloses, whether it's to a clergy person or more importantly, a medical person or a school official or a family member, a friend, whatever it is, that there is a degree of support and connection to the resources that can help them. And I, I believe everyone decides what's the best resource for them. I can't tell you that therapy is the best way for everyone. It is a very traditional, very formal process of healing. And that is not necessarily the only way. There's many other informal, peer-based, pastoral, um, even kind of, you know, uh, family member support that might be stronger and more impactful, but it needs to be something that the individual decides for. And more importantly, the people that are supporting them when it gets to the point that they realize they can't do anything more but than just validate, then they need to think about having that individual reach out to a more professional resource to take it a bit further, you know, to kind of stay in your lane and know your scope and know your role and take it a bit further. And then I will add, you know, Gail mentioned that she had disclosed this to her mom and that her mom, you know, obviously she felt her mom had a lot to deal with, with hearing this because of these experiences in life and having to hear about the trauma of your child, you, that mom, could probably benefit from talking to someone as well. And that's a secondary victim. And that's why at VSC, we're really proud that we can work with secondary victims because it is not a one-person healing journey. It is the systems that surround them, families and everyone that really supports human beings because we're, like I mentioned, we need relationships to be positive, to bring us to our next level in life, whatever that ultimate thing that we're going for. So I guess my, my point is, is that from Gail's perspective and, and, and her experience, as I see her as this kind of ideal lived experience as a thriver, yet I know that there's so many nuances there of like more impact that people have had that do they need to heal? Do they need to, you know, can we help them too? So it's, it's ever moving. That needle's always moving in terms of what we can do. Absolutely. And while Gail was talking, I was reflecting on this idea of, like you mentioned, of course, Joelle, and this idea of, you know, vicarious trauma, right? It can affect um, the, a lot of different units, including within the church or whatever community that this person has. But I also want to uplift this um, vicarious healing too, that I was hearing from you, Gail, is um, kind of this fuel of, as you see other people's 
heal and, and the impact of you being able to hold this space for survivors um, through your experience, but also through your work. Um, it's just kind of showing how healing we can come together, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's just really amazing. And Joellen, I wanted to ask you too, you know, specifically, how did you, I'm very curious, how did you kind of get involved in this particular work? Well, actually, I have a, a I'm licensed clinical social worker, and I have both a master's and a bachelor's in social work. Interestingly, I was going to pursue nursing, but I it wasn't for me. <laughs> Academically, I was fine, but I needed to kind of work with people more uh, interpersonally than physically. So, a lot of my career is was working in the child welfare system and watching individuals who were minors under 21 you know, see the experiences that they had at the hands of their family members or loved ones. And it's just always been important to me who are victims. When I came to Florida, I was very conscious about wanting to work with adults. I think it's important to want to work with adults who want to heal, who have the determination to do that. And so um, timing is everything I think in life. And I was very fortunate to be welcomed to the Victim Service Center as the program director. So kind of that's that's where I am in terms of like professionally and, and this work. And you know, you don't know where the world's gonna take you. And it's it's impacted me personally and professionally. And it's been amazing to kind of as social workers, we don't always see end results. And on a political or legislative level, you know, as you're an, uh, as I'm a social work administrator now. You know, I used to get satisfaction from client success, and then I would be satisfied with my staff success or agency success. And as I moved up, you know, where it's a macro level, where you see these successes that impact the larger system, like that's super exciting. Because this is one person, Gail's life, but the legacy is going to be impact for so many people to come. So that's exciting to me. Absolutely. And, and, you know, kind of piggybacking off of this idea and, and I appreciate you sharing your, your history there too, Joellen. I wanted to kind of talk about that macro kind of change that we might've seen, you know, throughout your life, how have you seen the culture change as far as talking about sexual violence, rape culture, and other things throughout your lifetime? And I'll give that to Gail first. Uh, as I said, my generation is not huge on talking about such things um, to that extent. Um, to tell those secrets, they go to their grave with them um, from the baby boomer generation. It's just something you don't do. And I have two children who are also baby boomers, two of my two older children born in the same generation, and they are the same way. They'll one will not go to counsel at all, and he really needs to. The um, other one goes and starts and then stops because, right, you know, get too close to those memories, you know, the backup thing. And then the, and then they swear they can heal thyself, you know, <laughs> you know, physician heal thyself kind of mentality. And then they get stuck out there. So I'm seeing the, my, the baby boomer generation, I, not a lost cause, but I really believe we're living longer and this. And the generations that in ahead of us are going to teach us something um, when it comes to how to handle this situation. Um, I believe they're doing it now. I believe 
Um, I love the fact they're doing counseling online because right away, you know, you know, something that's technology is the key. You know, unfortunately, we're not sitting across the couch with one another. So I think all of those things um, are going to aid and help to move it forward. Uh, so I, that my generation, it, for as long as we be here, we're here and willing to learn from another generation and help them push them out there and to let them know it's okay. It's okay. Um, but that might take a bit. That that might not be the case. <laughs> I talk to folks my age. You gotta know it. You gotta know it. But um, but the generation that now, um, I just can't say enough about them. I just think they're brave. Um, that they are. They they tackle anything. I I I think of the Parkwood crew. You know, just making moves, you know, and, and don't care what anybody thinks about it. I love it. And I think it's going to do a lot for those future generations to come. Um, I hope I answered your, your question, but okay. I'm, I'm just, you know, I, I'm passionate about it and I'll go off to something else, you know, so y'all have to pull me back in. But um, I just, I, I, I want to see my generation to thrive but I'm not going to wait on them. And I'm going to concentrate on the ones that came after me. You know, if I can add to that a little bit, when I think about over time, so we're just a little snapshot in the history of what this is going to look like. And it's really cool to look back and think about what things were when you think about, you know, women's suffrage and just as it relates to so much about dynamics about males, women's, even when you think about, you know, the LGBTQ experience and all of this. So I agree with Gail that there is a generational shift in wanting to talk and put out the experiences that people have and kind of name them and identify them. And it, it may be very westernized, like that might just be a very kind of American type of thing to do, but I think social media goes way beyond and there's so many forums to express yourself, whether, you know, by identifying who you are or being anonymous in that, and it offers an opportunity to disclose and hopefully receive back positive validation and affirmation. But I think what we're going to see, and we already do see it is, you know, we, we have diversity amongst us that is wonderful, but there's pockets of cultures that will take years for, for change to happen. When you think about, you know, some of the brutal assaults that happen in India and other parts of the world, um, gang rapes and such, maybe that's what happens in the future. Maybe it becomes much more of a international or global initiative um, rather than just one that's kind of local and, and kind of domestic, if you will. Yeah, and and just from my short-lived experience as a young person, I have actually seen a shift in culture even in my lifetime where when I started as a, uh, I was teaching about sexual assault on campus, actually, and when I first started that to peers, when I first started that, I asked questions like, do you know what victim blaming is? And no one would raise their hand. 
But by the end, which was just like a couple of years, everyone knew exactly what victim blaming was. So even in my short time on that college campus, I was starting to see that things like this um, were being more and more talked about and how to be better supporters and just hearing from survivors and their experiences and just kind of normalizing this conversation. And at the same time, we're now seeing how there needs to be more work done. But as this is happening, we're seeing things like Gail's Law come up where, wow, I didn't think of this, where survivors should probably have a right to know where their rape kit is and in the process, right? Um, that makes sense. But we wouldn't have known that if we didn't start normalizing these conversations and hearing from survivors and validating their experiences and coming at it from that ethical approach that you were talking about, Gail. Um, so I'd like to take this moment to thank you for all that you do, specifically, Gail. I truly believe when I say that when, uh, you know, Gail walked so that others could run, honestly. So how does it feel to be like a pioneer in this? How does it feel to have a law named after you? I was joking with my sister, um, this next event, then when I heard about it, I think it was about the early part of, of um, the early part of December or something like that. And they were telling me that they were gonna have to vet me um, through the FBI, and I would know then if it was real. And I was telling my sister last night. I said, "Well, I guess they didn't find my name on the um, on the on the a Black Panther list from 1960 or something." <laughs> so, and the life I lived in in New York City, you know, born in Harlem, raised in the South Bronx, you can only imagine. Uh, with a kid who making decisions that's been in abuse in situation, listen, it was rough. I stayed in the street when I stayed home, you know. And so I'll say to you that I am still in awe over this. And I told my sister this morning, he's on the phone, um, how I'm actually at a place where I went into the police station to get um, some information and the blanket. And I wanted to apply for the bank. I knew FDLE supposedly still have it. I think they have to keep it like 50 years or something. They're almost on it, <laughs> you know. And, and, um, and I wanted a copy of my records as, and, and so that I could write or video a memoir about my life and add that in and make sure I have all my information right. Well, I want you to know, I was telling, telling myself this morning, I said, I don't have to do that because I'm all over the place now. I can just put all the stuff together that people, all the Zooms and all the the, the video um, crew that's coming to, to to video and me, you know, and, and put pieces together. I said, this good, this, it worked out. Now all I gotta do is get the blanket, <laughs> you know, because it has actually been worked out. So I'm still walking around like this morning I woke up, I was woke up at uh, the same time at 445. I, I'm on a prayer line at 5 a.m. Then another one at 625. But I laid there a few minutes and said, you know what? I got that email yesterday. I said, God, this is really happening, you know? And if anybody would have told me, I told my best friends in New York in the beginning of what was going on and with the law and everything. They were crying, you know, because they remember the kid I was. And, 
and I was never going to be anything. I had two babies before everybody else. By the time I was 17 years old, I was never going to be anything. And that has totally flipped over. I was able to finish school, get a GED, go to college, raise children while I'm doing it. Off and on, it took me 20 years to get a bachelor's degree and then two master's degrees and working on a PhD now. Who does that? And so I'm going, all I was doing was moving, keeping it moving, you know, not sitting in, to, you know, where I was and, and always had hope. I always had hope. People said, what are you doing in Florida? I said, well, you know, it's cold down. I said, it's cold. And they said, well, you've been from New York. You ought not be cold. I said, that's why I'm in Florida. You know, I said, but the thing is, I always saw myself somewhere warmer. And sure enough, by going from New York to Kansas City, get married and then back and then over here to Florida again, I could never explain to anyone my life, but it would make a great novel, you know, and if I could get me a ghostwriter, because I, you know, I wrote one book and it's been so hard to write another and I got to write another like in the next couple of weeks. But I'm like, I mean, who does this? And so it's not that I'm bragging on myself. No way. I'm just still in all that, you know, and I got some friends that knew me when in New York would go, uh-uh, not her, you know. And I was promiscuous, you know, I don't even live that type of life anymore. Nobody would dare. And I'm having a hard time right now wondering, and I'm kind of keep from being emotional. Is this really happening to me? Um, so when the rest of this news come out, I'll be all over the country, not just in Florida. And I'm like, who does this? You know, how does this happen? So I have a, a what we call, um, some, some may call a higher power that I know is in control, but it's still like, wow, it's, it's a mind blower. And it took me Amazing. 30 minutes to pull off that lot at the police department while I sat in the car and said, what just happened <laughs> there, you know? And uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm just, I'm just at all. I cannot believe this person is in this, that all the people in the world, and you couldn't have told me this over 30, about 33 years ago, or even beyond that. So, this, I'm, I'm still kind of, you know, I'm still trying to digest it. And um, they're trying to find up ways for me. I've got legislators. I've met a king um, it, uh, by phone. He's, he's, I did my DNA for my family, African um, DNA, um, ancestry DNA, and I am Cameroonian, 9.4%. But 99.4 Cameroonian from the Bamaleke people. And there's some people here and some well-known people who are also part of that same tribe of people. And one of them in Boston, very connected to the king, got him on the WhatsApp line for me to talk wow. to. Him. You know, so he'll, you know, think being brought before kings, you know, cannot yeah. after he's a king. Of the you yeah, you, know. you can't tell me that doesn't have any correlation to your kind of biblical beliefs. Yeah, he'll bring you before great kings. And I'm going, dang. Because didn't know? you say, isn't your book called Still the King's Daughter? 
Well, that's the one that I'm working on to try to get me to finish Still the King's Daughter. And that was based on Tamar and how she went into obscurity because her brother and her father just play, just snuffed her off, sent her into that cultural thing. All right, you damaged goods now. You know, we're going to fight this war. So now I got to, the brother said, I got a reason now because he raped you, but not for the fact that he just raped this stepbrother just raped his sister and his dad they just told her shut up don't tell nobody just go to my house and live your life out that's what they did then so it's to my that that title comes because i want women to come out of that place of obscurity wherever they are in this journey as survivors mm -hmm. and know that you are still the king's daughter and that you there's still some things and hope for you and there's still a life out here for you and i'm living proof of that you are so I, I, you know, but to actually see it come into fruition is just blowing my mind. Well, I have would never in my life. And my friends, I'm telling you, that grew up with them, just, you know, they're just, they're, they're in awe. They're, when I tell them about, you know, the Gale's Law and everything, and, and they already know now, but now when I called them yesterday, my closest friends, mm -hmm. told them they're, they're in tears. Because it's, they knew the little girl that lived on the sixth floor in the projects. And that's the most beautiful thing about it is because you have lived such a wonderfully wealthy life. It's not been easy, no. but are now in terms of, you know, personal growth and adversity and everything you've overcome. Like you've been blessed, honestly. And I want your story to kind of be indicative of the hope others can have, because there's so many people who fear that they are damaged and they, they damage themselves more. Yes. Instead of healing, they use these terrible coping mechanisms and, you know, they, they take many steps back and it's a harder road to, to go through, but it is possible and it is achievable. And I love your, your thought of the looking forward, like even that I wanted to be in a place that was warmer and I, you know, got to Florida by way of the city, always having this idea that there's better for me, that there's something I could achieve in life that would satisfy me. I think that's key where you, where you're not content with what it is that you want more for, for the little bit of life that we all have. Yeah. I think yeah. it's awesome. And I'm, I'm so happy that everything is turning out the way it is. I am too. Thank you so much for your, for your encouragement. You and Louise and Emily's and the staff. I, um, I felt at one time so dis, disjointed, you know, from you guys. And I was so glad that I felt like something was missing and it was BSC. And so the reconnect just worked for me. And like you did not believe because I guess couldn't, leave it alone. I said, this is what I do. And, um, this, you know, I'm here for that reason. So I'm so glad it, it just works out for me. Um, but for all of us, it's a, it's, it's a family, it's a community and everyone doesn't have their community. So we are looking forward to that. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you, you so much. much. Thank you so much for, you know, sharing all of this. It, it was just really moving to hear about this and um, I think that when you were saying things like, I can't believe this, um, I think that it's also important to know 
and have this space of celebrating you too and, and processing all of that that you've achieved and on behalf of survivors and yourself too. So wanna, I'm glad that we're able to have this space and I hope we continue to have space where we can celebrate um, all the amazing things that you have done. Um, and I'm very excited to hear about your ghost writing memoir. I'm gonna read it. It's gonna be amazing. <laughs> I, I, I broke it down to, hey, they don't read anyway. Let's do a video, you know, with an iPhone or something. Cause they don't read. I was an English teacher. I know they don't read, you know. And, and, and my first book, everybody got it on the shelf. Ask one of them if they read it. Nope. So <laughs> we're going to do. It's okay. Everybody, it's okay. We're going to piece together this. <laughs> I'm going to get a, a, a hey, it, it, you recording this? I need the video. There you Please. go. Perfect. Yeah. Yes, I will do, yeah. <laughs> do that. We're and, and starting Gail's documentary. Here we go. <laughs> I have to have it together for the producers when they call me. I'm working on that stuff this week because they're going to call me for stuff like this. And so if I can have it, if DSC will let me have it, have it, I sure would appreciate it. And anything else you got on me, I'm declaring, I just can't believe this is going on in my life. So. It's I will absolutely. be 75 this year and I am celebrating every month and enjoying it, you know, and let me just say, I've decided not to even, you know, you do the mother thing. I don't know if Joelle got there yet, but you do the mother thing. We want to give advice, but they don't want advice. They just want you to listen. And it's mm -hmm. taken me a long time to learn that a long time. So now I just listen because I'm going to, I, that way I know that I'm going to stay at peace. Mm -hmm. and enjoy my birthday year so thank you awesome mm -hmm. awesome Incredible. i think that that is such a beautiful place to kind of sign off but before i do is there any kind of last um things that you'd like to bring up that we may not have mentioned or anything that you'd like to say to survivors out there anything like that as a closing statement yes next month i i have gathered so far uh uh partners of course BSC is there and been always been with me um and also um state attorney's office is right, right on cue and this uh a couple other legislators and so we're sending out partnership letters this week I got a couple of people who are volunteering for me and helping me keep it like my so, uh keep it straight and so we're getting out to do a town hall in all 67 counties and being able to talk about Gail's law and victims' rights. And so we're that's in the planning stage and starting next month. And under wraps, I guess I could say it anyway, but I'm gonna say it, we're looking to start because we've gotten an offer to begin at, at the uh, Florida A&M College of Law. And so um, that's volunteers over there wanna work with us to get, get it done. And I'm just excited about that. So look for us in your county. Uh, we will also be talking to uh, groups there, women's groups, and anyone know any women's women's group that would like to do whether virtual or face-to-face, -face, let us know. We'll see if we can put you on the schedule. We're going to try to do this from 20, um, well, from March um, to uh, to December. We're going to try to fit everything in on the schedule and anything else that comes up. Well, we'll have a new book, a revised copy of the first book. Yeah. <laughs> and and, um, and we're going to look to have a second book. We'll try the next one by this time. Boy, I got some work in front of me. 
And so hopefully um, we'll, we'll be able to do that, still the king's daughter. And also we are looking to uh, want people to, to, to know that there is a, in, in each county, there are victims rights, the same thing for most counties in, in the state, I'm pretty sure. Um, I want folks to know that they have to do their, they have to do the work. They have to do the work. But our our legislators, our um, those who are uh, law enforcement, our our providers, um, everybody's got caseloads of you know of the yin yang, you know. And it's not fair to say that yours is important. We want you to think it's important because we because you are important. But you gotta get out there and get someone to advocate for you or you do the labor in order to make sure that your rights are not being uh, you know, left off the table. You want you let them know you want to see that table when they make decisions about you. Make sure you do that. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Gail. I think that that's great. And you know, I did a whole podcast on victims' rights, and one of the things that they said was. Um, one of the guests said, you're not a burden. And I think that that I definitely want to highlight that where you deserve healing, you deserve rights, and you're absolutely not a burden. Um, yeah. Is there anything you'd like to add to that, Joellen, before we sign off? Yeah, I mean, I think that was a great way to end. And I, I really appreciate the time with Gail. I would just say if this podcast conversation was one that impacted you, and you do want to talk to someone about your experience or the experience of a loved one, contact the Victim Service Center. We have a helpline, 407-500-HEAL, and someone will be there to provide some support and connection. So thank you, Emily, for hosting us. And Gail, thank you for taking time out of your busy, busy, busy schedule <laughs> space with us. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. And thank you. Oh, go ahead, Gail, sorry. Now I'm going to say, you get first dibs. <laughs> first dibs. I appreciate that. Yeah. I love that. And thank you for listening to the Victim Service Center podcast. The VSE is a nonprofit organization that provides free confidential counseling services and other services for victims of any kind of trauma in Central Florida. To learn more about those services, please visit victimservicecenter.org. And to everyone listening, Healing is not linear and you are not alone. And I just want to thank once again, Joellen and Gail for being here today. Thank you so, so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Bye.